How y'all doing that? Sure, I'd like to thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion Pie Talk. Man, look at here. Now, y'all know before we get started, I always like to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. I'm not smoking on anything right now because it's a work day. Usually don't smoke on the work day. But I do have this little good cigar in my hand here. I'm thinking about doing a little pie talk here and recording a little something. So just for a little confidence, had a little cigar in my hand. Might go out on my front porch and smoke it. But what I got in my hand right here, I got a punch guru, a punch grand puro Nicaraguan. Man, that show is a mouthful. Old Louisiana educated boy like myself. Now I'm gonna tell you what these people say. Cause like I say, I ain't smoked this little thing here yet, so I can't give y'all my opinion. But you all know I got to tell y'all what these folks say. Now they say that this punch grand puro Nicaraguan is a medium to full body palate pleaser, enriched with a hearty Connecticut broadleaf Maduro wrapper. Now y'all know I like them Maduro wrappers. <laughs> this thing here is a Nicaraguan long fillers, delivered bold notes of pepper and cedar combined with earthy hints of leather. That it go with all that stuff there. This punch grand puro Nicaragua is the ultimate cigar for the body and the flavor. Man, that show sounds sexy. Now, they also say here that this Punch Grand Puro Nicaragua has received a well-deserved 90 rating. Now, I still don't know what them ratings. I'm going to have to ask one of my cigar buddies. What they mean by these ratings, like these 90 ratings, some 96 ratings? Who doing these ratings out there? I'm going to have to ask my buddy. They know more about this thing than I do here. Now, they also say that this dark toothy cigar has an even draw and a burn. That means the draw is even and the burn is even. See, sometimes you smoke, you smoke these sticks. They start burning un, uneven. You have to take your little lighter, your little torch, and kind of even up and you know, even even up all the sides to keep that even burn. But see, they say this thing here has an even draw and an even burn. Very interesting. I'll be happy to tell y'all, maybe after the pod talk, I'll be, be uh, maybe able to tell y'all my little point of view on that little stick here or this stick here. May I show you? Okay. They say it starts off earthy with the heavy mineral notes, but becomes sweet with hints of apple, almonds, and cedar. Ain't that something? Now, I don't know how they get all that almond. Now, I like almonds, so I should maybe take them almonds. I like apples sometimes, so this is going to be an interesting stick here. I want to see now. I'll be now. I definitely will be able to tell if these folks feeling or not, because like I say, when they say earthy, I got to take their word for them, earthy, because I ain't never traced no earthy. But I know what apple, almonds, and I know what cedar smell like. So maybe I do know what cedar tastes like because sometimes you can barbecue and you can use that cedar wood, I think. But, you know, I digress. So I'm going to have to I'll tell you all about this little stick maybe a little later on. But this Punch Grand Puro Nicaragua, right? Now, here's a little, a, a little, a little um, addendum here. This Punch Grand Puro Nicaragua cigar, they say it's currently undergoing a package change. But the blend remains the same. That means they're changing the band on this thing here. You know, maybe it wasn't a little fancy enough, so they're going to fancy it up a little bit for y'all. So you got to be careful what you're ordering out there. Make sure you're ordering the right things. they switching these bands up. Now, go to your local cigar spot and see if they carry this Punch Grand Poodle Nicaraguan. Or you can go online like I tell y'all all the time. You know, if you can't find your local spot, then y'all go online and see if you can find it online. It's like CI. Or holds or somewhere like that. Now, them folks don't pay me nothing for promoting them because they don't know nothing about me. They don't know nothing about me. These holds cigars, so I'm not getting anything. I just love cigars. And cigars is very social. You know, I like having a good cigar and sit around my folks. Or just sit around anybody who enjoy a good cigar and just have a nice conversation. 
Mostly I like to listen because I ain't too bright. <laughs> so I figured if I listen a little, maybe I can get pick up a few pieces of the little things that I can like I can get by every day. So that's why I love cigar smoking. I ain't never went to a cigar place. Ain't, ne ain't never went to a cigar place. It didn't meet good people that you can just sit and have a light smoke with and little have conversation with. I love it. Always somebody in a cigar smart a, a cigar spot smarter than me. And that's the best thing. Like I used to tell this old boy. When I was married, I used to say, I want to be the dumbest thing in my house. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the dumbest thing in my house. I got a, I, I got a pretty okay house. You know what I mean? If I'm the dumbest one in my house, <laughs> that's my thing. So I always want to be the dumbest person in the cigar spot. Don't want to go in there like I'm the smartest man in the world because I won't learn anything. So, you know, y'all pick up this Punch Grand Puro Nicaraguan. Man, this thing here, we're going to see what it tastes like. Now, I told y'all what them folks say. Okay. But look here. We're going to get off into what I want to talk about here tonight. You know, we're going to take a look at how do banks actually work? You know, how do central banks work? You know, how do Goldman and Sachs work? We're gonna, I'm going to get a little background on each one of these. And then we're going to take a look at the, the 2008 economic crash. Now, I know that's kind of redundant for some of you folks out there. But a lot of times y'all hear a whole lot of different things and y'all don't hear the truth. Like, like my dad used to say, you got to watch folks. Folks uh, mix a whole lot of lies with a little bit of truth and have you believe in it. You know what I mean? It's like seasoning that you put in your gumbo. You know, there's a lot of good things in gumbo. There's a lot of things in gumbo you may not want to know that's in that. Okay? But it still tastes good. And that's when that's what a good lie is. A good lie show tastes good, but it's still a lie. Now, I'm not saying that them folks lied about anything. I'm just saying we're going to take a quick look at these things. Because banks are very vital and important to us. A lot of people hate banks. You know, they hate the Federal Reserve, you know, and like I tell you all the time, much as um, I may not agree with everything the Federal Reserve do, I do agree that I'd rather have a Federal Reserve or a banking system in place uh, outside of our government. Because if you have the government print money and government over the banks, then every four years when a new politician come into office, right, you you, you will have inflation or you can have the value of, of, the, of the currency because politicians are panderers. By having a separate organization, per se, runs our monetary system. To me, I like that. Now, the our government officials, when they get in there, they can put pressure on the Federal Reserve. But you know what? It's on so much pressure that they, they can apply. Okay? But I'm not going to get off into all that right now. Right now, I'm going to sit back here, you know, with my punch, Grand Poodle, Nicaraguan in my hand. I may go out on my front garden and take me a few puffs on it. Like I say, this is a work day. I too would like to smoke on my work day because my work day, I like to... Work and then go get my workout in. You know, I only smoke. I, I try not to smoke on like Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursday. You know, I got we. I go to hang out with my fellas and we smoke and play bubble pool. And then Friday, I like to take a smoke. You know, uh, Sarah like to take a smoke. And sometime on Sunday, you know, occasionally, but not all the time. So, uh, but uh, like I say, I'm getting off into something else right now. Let's take a look right now at how do banks work. I'm going to take you all through a little of the central banks. I'm going to take you a little through Goldman Sachs, and we're going to touch on at the end this 2008 economic crash, all right? So, look, I'm going to go on ahead, and y'all take a listen to this, and I'll catch up with y'all on the flip side. All right, now. Let's take a look at how do banks work, including central banks and Goldman and Sachs, then a quick reminder of the 2008 economic crash. Banks and banking have been a large topic of discussion in recent years. There are some things that are very wrong with banking, but they aren't what most people normally think about. Many people blame banks for being reckless, and there are people who associate this with capitalist greed or such nonsense. In reality, 
banks are a necessary element in the economy. There is no real reason why people, or the economy, should be subject to how that particular element is behaving. However, recent changes in the way banks work, have created a system where the activity of banks can affect us directly, and this had a lot to do with the proliferation of the financial crisis. The Origin of Banking The first banks originated from associations of merchants who would make loans to farmers and other merchants, normally against their crops and other merchandise. This was an important development for the economy. Because of this, farmers could sustain themselves while waiting for harvest season. Likewise, merchants and traders could fund voyages across the ocean to sell their goods elsewhere. Merchant banking progressed from financing trade on one's own behalf to settling trades for others and then to holding deposits for settlement of billet or notes written by the people who were still brokering the actual grain. And so the merchant's benches, bank is derived from the Italian for bench, banca, as in a counter, in the great grain markets became centers for holding money against a bill, billet, a note, a letter of formal exchange, later a bill of exchange and later still a check. These deposited funds were intended to be held for the settlement of grain trades, but often were used for the bench's own trades in the meantime. How do banks work? Over the next 1000 years, this practice would evolve into the global financial system we know and, don't, love today. As banking became more prominent, it expanded its field of business. Insurance companies can also be seen as a form of banking. Banks soon became not only a place to get a loan but also a place for people to store their money. Eventually, banks would also settle transactions amongst their clients. Bank checks came to be used as a form of money, though they really aren't. As the financial system has grown bigger it has become increasingly difficult for the common man to understand how this complex machinery works exactly. Especially when you hear people talking about derivatives, futures, and interest rate swaps. One can easily reach the conclusion that bankers are just somehow taking advantage of the system, by essentially gambling on the economy and making us pay the price. The truth, however, is a little bit more complex than that. A regular bank should work like any other business. If we look at a bank's balance sheet and break it down we can see there's nothing too strange going on. Like any company, a bank has assets and liabilities. The bank's assets are the loans it has made, which it expects to get a return from. The liabilities are money that it owes, either to other banks or depositors. It's important to understand that when you deposit money in a bank, you are essentially making a loan to the bank. The bank receives income from its assets and makes interest payments to depositors and other people who have borrowed money from the bank. The difference between these is the profit. Wells Fargo gets an average of 7.79% from its loans, that's your mortgage, credit cards, business loans, etc., and pays out an average of 2.96% on its borrowings, that's your savings accounts, current accounts, CDs etc., producing a net interest margin of 4.83%. This profit shows up in the income statement, the second most important item in the report. Here we see the interest received, $32 billion, minus the interest paid, $12 billion, producing net interest income of $20 billion. Then there is a provision for credit losses. Afterward, Wells Fargo declares $17.7 billion of net interest income. Then, there is about $16 billion of non-interest income, mostly fees and charges, and don't we all know about those, followed by non-interest expenses of $20.7 billion, mostly salaries, and other compensation. At the end of the day, Wells Fargo made $12.7 billion before taxes and $8.5 billion after taxes. Quite a lot of work to make $8.5 billion, no. They had to carry a ginormous $481 billion of assets to make that relatively puny $8.5 billion in profit. That's a ratio of 1.77%, return on assets. 
which is sort of low, you could say. However, the shareholders did pretty well. The total amount of capital invested in the company, crudely speaking, was $45.9 billion, the shareholders' equity or book value. So, if you had a $45.9 billion investment and got paid $8.5 billion in profit for just one year, that's a return on equity of 18.5%. Sort of like a bond that pays 18.5%. Juicy. That's why there are so many banks out there. You can look at it this way, you start with $46 billion. You borrow $436 billion and lend $481 billion, approximately. You make a profit of $8.5 billion. The difference between the rather mediocre yield on loans, 7.79%, low return on assets, 1.77%, and the splendid return on equity, 18.5%, is due to leverage. The bank is leveraged at about 10,1, this means for every dollar the shareholders have invested, the bank carries 10 of in assets. This is akin to the homeowner with a 10% down payment, who carries $500,000 of assets, the house, on a $50,000 down payment and a $450,000 mortgage. Banking Limitations Some of you may be wondering at this point how exactly banks can lend out all their money, while always having cash available for their depositors. This is a very good question and the answer lies at the heart of banking. To better understand this topic, let's first define two terms which can sometimes be confused. A bank, or business, is liquid if it has enough available cash to meet its short-term payments. On the other hand, Solvency is the ability of a company to meet its long-term financial obligations. Banks have to keep enough money in their reserves to be liquid, so that they can make payments on their short-term debts, or simply to allow people to access their deposits. Calculating and changing the bank's liquidity is somewhat simple. It's a matter of changing the form of their assets. If a bank is short on cash all it has to do is call in some of its short-term debts or it can even borrow the money from another bank. In general, however, banks want to loan out all their money, since this is how they profit. This careful act of balancing liquidity is one of the most important things a banker has to do. Solvency is a little bit harder to measure. It comes down to the quality of the loans the bank has made. At this point rating agencies become involved, but of course, we know they can't always be trusted. In general, something like a government bond would be considered a secure investment. But things like mortgages or credit card debt have a higher probability of default. A bank may be a liquid but still be solvent. Liquidity used to be a big problem when banks first appeared. A crisis in confidence may push depositors to withdraw their funds from a bank. Before the age of instant transfers and central banks, this could have meant the end of a bank. Central banks such as the Federal Reserve and Bank of England were in fact first created with this purpose in mind. The central bank would be a lender of last resort. Granting banks emergency funding if they so required. This can work if the problem is of liquidity. However, there isn't in reality much a central bank can do if the banks are insolvent. In 2008, the crash in the housing market meant a default on many loans. This did, in fact, make some banks insolvent. They had simply lost too much money to bad investments, therefore making it physically impossible for them to repay their debts. Commercial vs Investment Banking Since banks are loaning out money, it stands to reason that there should be more and less risky banks. These banks should make different investments, both in risk and in time frame. This was the case for a long time. Commercial banks used to be clearly separated from investment banks. A commercial bank is where you'd have your basic CDs and savings accounts. It's a regular folks bank. The idea is that, more than anything, they are managing liquidity. With a CD, 
you are giving the money to the bank under the pretense that you can withdraw it at any time. Therefore, the investments of a commercial bank should be low risk and easy to liquidate, government bonds, or even monetary funds. An investment bank, on the other hand, would hold your funds for longer and make riskier investments. It would buy stocks, corporate bonds, and might use some of the more modern financial instruments such as derivatives to bet in the forex market. Intuitively, this separation makes sense. In 1933 a piece of legislation was introduced in the US known as the Glass-Steagall Act which officially separated these two forms of banking. As recently as 1999 this legislation was repealed. This remains a serious point of discussion in the UK. Conclusion As far as I'm concerned, banking in itself is a necessary institution. I don't think it is immoral or should be viewed with any more contempt than other businesses. However, modern banking has a lot of problems which have been discussed a lot, especially since the 2008 meltdown. For starters, we have the problem of moral hazard, meaning that, due to the protection and privileges that states have granted banks, this has incentivized them to act more recklessly. Thanks to government bailouts banks can privatize their profits while socializing their losses. Secondly, we have a problem with central banks around the world, using their power to help bankers increase their profits. By systematically lowering interest rates and offering cheap credit, central banks are just making it easier for the financial sector to acquire funds. There used to be a time when banks would have to actually offer their clients a return on their money, and checking accounts would offer returns of 5%. But it has been a long time since those days, and the consequences can be felt. Finally, there is a problem with the increasing amount of derivatives. The derivatives markets triple every year, and its growth outpaces that of any other market, having reached recently a total estimated value of $100 trillion. Speculation has a place in banking, but gambling does not, and it's important to understand the difference. Speculation is trying to predict future outcomes, based on forces of nature which may or may not push things one way or another. This means that we try to guess and ensure ourselves against the risks created by nature. Gambling, on the other hand, means betting on risks created by man. When you go to a casino and you spin a wheel and try to guess on which number the ball will land, that is gambling. It is a game of chance and the uncertainty in it is a human creation. In those two simple definitions, we can find the hidden truth behind derivatives markets. We can understand why derivatives have grown to over 100 trillion, having been virtually non-existent before the 1930s. The way in which monetary policy has evolved in the last century has given place to what we have today. Through this dogma of money supply manipulation, we have created, us humans, a world of uncertainty in terms of interest rates, exchange rates, and the gold price. Back in the age of the gold standard, interest rates were stable, and also, notably low and exchange rates were fixed. Now banks stand to make millions on small changes between currencies, especially due to incredible amounts of leverage. This, I believe, is not a natural or necessary part of banking. A brief history of finance giant Goldman Sachs. Global financial giant Goldman Sachs is alternatively loved and feared among both the Wall Street and Main Street crowds. Its earnings potential is storied and long-standing. Concurrently, Goldman has found itself at the center of controversy quite frequently during its 150-year history. Some may say that is inevitable when you are one of the largest banks on the planet. Others say you do not get to be one of the largest banks on the planet without dipping your toes into troubled waters. We will trace the prehistory of Goldman Sachs from its founding through present day to try to paint a more complete picture of this financial giant. The Prehistory of Goldman Sachs The entity that would eventually become Goldman Sachs began with a teacher called Marcus Goldman, who left his native Bavaria in 1848 to start a small shop in the United States. He launched a commercial paper trading business in New York in 1869, 
geared toward providing other small business with short-term capital to cover their growing pains and initial expenses. This broker business grew by fits and starts until his son-in-law Samuel Sachs joined up in 1882, then it positively exploded. The newly christened Goldman, Sachs and Co. began to explore business options outside of the commercial paper industry, delving into offshore debt and currency arbitrage. It also struck out against established market players by taking on the accounts that larger banks tended to ignore. Famously, Goldman, Sachs and Co. shepherded the fledgling Sears Roebuck Company through its initial public offering in 1906. At the same time, the company began to make a name for itself as an investment bank, calling for stricter company financial reporting to make transactions more transparent and admonishing its client companies to buy back their own shares when they were undervalued. The company began to make a name for itself as an investment bank, calling for stricter company financial reporting to make transactions more transparent. The business continued to grow throughout the first portion of the 20th century, ultimately creating the Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation to handle the new influx of business in the 1920s. However, the end of the decade brought with it the 1929 Great Depression. The newly created trading arm was only propped up by the established commercial paper and investment banking services. Goldman Sachs ran into its first major public controversy during the Great Depression. The company was allegedly involved in a pyramid scheme that involved the creation of over-leveraged investment trusts. Walter Sachs was forced to sell his personal yacht to help keep the company afloat. In the years following the Great Depression, non-family member Sidney Weinberg, who had taken the reins of the company during the market crash, pushed the company deeper into arbitrage dealings for both currency and securities. At the same time, Goldman Sachs began to establish close contacts within the U.S. government, which would pay dividends when the company was called upon to provide financing services during both World War II and the Korean conflict. The Revolution of the 1990s Goldman Sachs had been slowly accumulating power and prestige since its founding, and it became an initial public offering staple for large companies, like Ford, during the 1950s. However, the evolution of Goldman Sachs from big bank to global titan really consolidated from the 1970s through the 1990s. During this period, Goldman Sachs reached into an ever-growing satchel of commodity markets, overseas interests, and new financial partnerships. It also began to spin off certain non-core assets to increase its ability to speculate. The company had learned from its adventures in the 1920s with Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation, keeping risky investments away from the company's financial base. In the early 1990s, Goldman Sachs consistently broke its own profitability records each year. In 1996, the company adjusted its corporate structure in preparation for its 1999 initial public offering. The offering raised a cool $7 billion in capital for the company, which it immediately reinvested in its business. The Great Recession In 2006, the U.S. housing market began a historic turnaround. For the first time in recent memory, the housing market began to lose value nationwide. Behind the scenes, what might have been just a blip on the financial radar was quickly growing in size and scope. Pools of risky mortgage loans had been collected together by major financial institutions, and then derivatives based on that wafer-thin securities were issued. In addition, some financial institutions began to issue credit default swaps, or bets against default. Goldman Sachs provided the underwriting for many of those financial products. In fact, according to a 2016 settlement the company reached with the U.S. Department of Justice, Goldman Sachs fraudulently underwrote and issued many of those mortgages despite knowing the risks involved. Ultimately, Goldman Sachs paid a total of $5.1 billion because of its conduct prior to the Great Recession. About $2.39 billion was paid in the form of civil penalties, while $1.8 billion went to loan forgiveness and housing relief. 
A further $875 million was doled out to various state and federal entities with claims against the company. This resolution holds Goldman Sachs accountable for its serious misconduct in falsely assuring investors that securities it sold were backed by sound mortgages, when it knew that they were full of mortgages that were likely to fail, said Acting Associate Attorney General Stuart Dealey in a statement from the Department of Justice. This $5 billion settlement includes a $1.8 billion commitment to help repair the damage to homeowners and communities that Goldman acknowledges resulted from its conduct, and it makes clear that no institution may inflict this type of harm on investors and the American public without serious consequences. The Future of Goldman Sachs Goldman Sachs has hardly escaped controversy since that multi-billion dollar settlement, which was joined by similar settlements from its financial peers. It remains a perennially popular target of the Occupy Wall Street movement, despite that movement cresting in 2011. Most recently, it has drawn a good deal of attention for its forays into the notoriously volatile, and unregulated, cryptocurrency industry. Market rumors began swirling about Goldman Sachs' interest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in early 2018 when it hired former 7-8 Capital Vice President Justin Schmidt to look into the possibility of opening a Bitcoin trading desk. Large financial institutions are almost without exception sceptical of digital currencies, so Goldman Sachs' move was seen as a potential game-changer. Counter-rumors have arisen that Goldman Sachs is nixing its potential Bitcoin trading desk in the midst of a large drop-off in cryptocurrency prices, but those rumors have been poo-pooed by Goldman Sachs executives. It is likely that perhaps the world's most recognizable megabank will continue to stay on the forefront of financial controversy, as the profits continue to roll in. The company recorded a net profit of $2.35 billion in the second quarter. Despite the persistence of geopolitical and economic risks, the backdrop remains constructive as our clients continue to seek our advice and market-making services, said Chief Financial Officer Marty Chavez during the company's Q2 earnings conference call. While it's impossible to predict the future, we remain cautiously optimistic that many of the broader drivers underpinning the solid start to the year, healthy economic growth, positive investor sentiment and the emergence of new market trends can remain in place. In ending, let's take a quick look at Central Bank. A central bank is an organization that primarily manages a monetary system. The term usually refers to the central bank for a country, or a group of countries like the European Union, but not every country uses a central bank. The duties of a central bank vary from country to country. For example, the bank might have a goal of maintaining price stability, which means, among other things, limiting how quickly prices rise over time due to inflation. Banks often have to juggle competing goals. For example, a bank might also be charged with keeping unemployment low, but some of the techniques used to fight unemployment might cause unwanted inflation. The Central Bank of the United States is the Federal Reserve System. Created by Congress on December 23, 1913, the Fed is made up of public and private participants, some appointed by government officials, and others operating in the private sector, in other words, they are businesses. This mixture of public and private interests is supposed to allow the Fed to operate without too much influence from lawmakers, but still serve the interests of the public. The Fed's main priority or mandate, the goal it is charged with pursuing, is to keep prices stable, or keep inflation low, and keep people employed, or keep unemployment low. These two goals are known as a dual mandate the Fed is supposed to keep the economy growing while juggling the goals above. At the same time, the Fed performs other duties. The US Central Bank functions in three separate ways. Monetary policy, again, the Fed's main responsibility is to, attempt to, manage the economy by conducting monetary policy. To do this, the Fed increases or decreases the supply of money in the system. There are three tools for doing so. Open market operations, 
the Fed can buy and sell securities to other banks in order to supply, or absorb, cash. Managing the discount rate, the Fed can make it easier or harder to borrow by lowering or raising interest rates. The Fed does not decide how much you earn in your savings account, or how much interest you pay on a loan, but those rates are indirectly influenced by Fed actions. Managing reserve requirements, the Fed can change the amount that banks need to keep internally. When banks are required to hold more, they can lend less, which tends to slow down economic growth. Bank supervision, the Fed also regulates banks, the banks that businesses and individuals make deposits to and borrow from, with the goal of maintaining a healthy and fair banking system. By limiting the risks that banks can take and protecting consumers, the Fed hopes to avoid the types of problems that arose in the 2008 financial crisis. Financial services, finally, the Fed helps banks conduct business, acting as an intermediary in many transactions. Without the Fed, electronic payments, such as wire transfers and ACH payments, would look much different. The Fed also helps banks clear checks, moving the funds from one institution to another. The Fed acts as a bank to other banks, most individual consumers and businesses do not interact with the central bank. Controversy The actions, and even the existence, of central banks are the subject of much debate. Some people think that these institutions provide valuable services, protecting consumers, facilitating trade, and helping to keep the economy running more or less smoothly. Others take the view that central banks interfere with free trade and create unintended consequences that are worse than the problems being solved. In closing, let's take quick review on what actually caused the 2008 financial crisis. At least the details that lead up to the worst financial crisis since 1929's Great Depression. The banks, central banks along with Wall Street had their hands in it. The worst financial crisis since the 1929's Great Depression caught most everyone by surprise, from Wall Street to Main Street. In hindsight, the conditions that led to 2008's financial crisis and subsequent Great Recession were well entrenched years before, making a crisis of some sort practically inevitable. Understanding the root causes of the crisis, how the dominoes began to fall into the Great Recession, and what the lingering effects are today may grant insight into future financial pitfalls. To get an appropriate grasp on what exactly forced the global financial system to nearly fail in 2008, we have to start a few years before, when financiers on Wall Street began to package together suspicious-looking mortgages into fiscally palatable packages. So-called subprime mortgage seekers, or folks who were seeking housing loans with poor or non-existent credit, were issued loans. These collections of risky loans were collected together by financial institutions into securities, allegedly to reduce the overall risk by pooling them together. The model was based on insurance, whereby a large number of unrelated entities are linked together to spread the risk over the entire group. The failure in this model was that property market nationwide was linked together. Instead of the region-specific model that had served the U.S. well for decades, the housing market as a whole began to rise and fall in tandem. In 2006, specifically, the housing market in the U.S. began to lose value. Time bomb. A ticking time bomb. A further derivative layer was added when the collected mortgage securities were used to back an additional form of security known as a collateralized debt obligation, or CDO. These CDOs were then issued outstanding credit ratings by supposedly independent ratings agencies, like Standard & Poor's. The issue was the ratings agencies were merely doing the bidding of their banking customers rather than performing rigorous, independent ratings. In essence, the banks were paying to have their risky CDOs rubber-stamped by the agencies. The low interest rates attached to these CDOs drew investors like moths to a flame, pumping more and more money into a system that ultimately rested on creditors with no means to support them. It was like an ever-growing tower built on a foundation of sand. The fall. The foundation ultimately gave way when the housing market suffered a serious downturn.
but those that depended on the pooled mortgage securities began to plummet in value, and investors began a fevered rush to drop them at all costs in 2007. It was this domino effect that would ultimately lead to widespread bank failures, including the landmark Lehman Brothers bankruptcy that officially kicked off the financial crisis. A financial tool known as credit default swaps were the final nail in the financial coffin. Credit default swaps act similar to insurance policies, they are a bet between a seller and a buyer on the status of a third-party loan. If the third party defaults on its loan, the seller agrees to cover the cost to the buyer. If the third party does not default, the buyer continues to pay the seller a premium, not unlike a monthly insurance premium. A financial tool known as credit default swaps were the final nail in the financial coffin. Following the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, US insurance titan AIG collapsed as its credit default swaps finally came due. Quite simply, he there was not enough money, money circulating in the real world market to cover the vast derivative positions that had been built up. Furthermore, those vast derivative positions were ultimately based on the flimsy and risky mortgage pools. The Lehman Brothers Bankruptcy Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy on September 15, 2008, image from Business Insider. There were multiple points of failure on the way to the 2008 financial crisis. Had banks not been eager to issue risky loans to unqualified creditors, no mortgage pools would have been established. Had ratings agencies acted in a truly independent manner, those would not have been able to stand on the paper-thin mortgage pools. Had those ratings been poor, as they should have been, investors would not have pumped so much auxiliary money into a system doomed to fail. And, finally, had credit default swaps been more tightly managed by governmental regulatory agencies, the whole system would not have grown so top-heavy. There was even a post-crisis point where the damage could have been mitigated by bailing out Lehman Brothers before it ultimately toppled. None of those safeguards was activated, however, and the 2008 financial crisis gradually deepened into the so-called Great Recession. Picking up the pieces. The Great Recession that followed the 2008 financial crisis was felt in every corner of the globe, despite its origins in the US. As a result, it fell on the US government to put things back on track. The plan ultimately crafted by US Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke and US Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson called for a $700 billion bank bailout package. It initially received hefty criticism, due to the bank's roles in causing the crisis in the first place. This resistance was primarily led by the Republican Party, which stalled a vote on the bailout for two weeks while the global economy continued to suffer. The bailout did eventually make it through the US Congress in a modified form. About $350 billion was used to bail out banks and automotive manufacturers by purchasing stock, with the condition that the money ultimately be paid back to the US taxpayer. As of 2010, U.S. banks had replaced about $194 billion of the total. By 2012, President Obama was telling gathered crowds that every dime given to the banks had ultimately been paid back. About $350 billion was used to bail out banks and automotive manufacturers by purchasing stock, with the condition that the money ultimately be paid back to the U.S. taxpayer. The remaining $350 billion was not directly used for bailouts or immediate post-crisis patching. An alternative plan was hatched by President Barack Obama's administration to prime the nation's financial pump with a $787 billion economic stimulus package. The package is largely credited with formally ending the Great Recession in July 2009. The trough created by the Great Recession, however, is still being filled piecemeal today, almost a decade later. Ongoing Recovery A significant amount of backtracking occurred as a result of the Great Recession. Many industrial sectors found credit nearly impossible to find in the early days of the recovery, stunting growth in everything from steel to auto to non-residential construction. 
Those industries are still dealing with the new normal of managing lean inventories and making do with partial credit agreements, tightly tied to extant orders. Perhaps the most significant lasting fallout from the Great Recession, however, can be seen in the political sphere. Worldwide austerity programs have been put in place to manage debt still hanging around from 2008 to 2009, while governments concurrently crack down on shady banking practices. However, this was not enough to stave off widespread public protests, like the 2011 Occupy Wall Street movement that still pops up in fits and starts. Some political observers even link the election of U.S. President Donald Trump to middle-class resentment stemming from the financial crisis. Indeed, then-candidate Trump said in 2016 that one of his stated presidential goals was restoring the manufacturing capabilities lost during the Great Recession. Worldwide austerity programs have been put in place to manage debt still hanging around from 2008 to 2009, while governments concurrently crack down on shady banking practices. Although the acute effects of the Great Recession are long gone, the aftershocks will likely be felt in both the US and global economic systems for decades to come. For you Obama fanboys. Yes he was just like President Tricky, Dick Nixon, I cannot tell a lie. Air quote, air quote. <laughs> All right then, what y'all think about that? Man, that's some good information, ain't it? It's like putting two and 14 together and getting 23. <laughs> I'll tell y'all. But look at it though. You know, I remember back in, uh, I think it was like 1990. It was, it was actually 1990. The 90 and 91, I had uh, first bought my first house. Pretty, pretty, it was pretty interesting how I did it. Um, one, thing, one thing I did was I had good credit. Second thing was I had a pretty decent little job. At that time, you know, I was making probably around about, you know, maybe $12 an hour, $12, $13. And back at that time, you know, that, you know, that wasn't no bad money for no single man. But my mom had this uh, old friend, this old, this, this old friend that came up from Louisiana with us. You know, he was an older guy, of course, like my mom. And he, when he had came up to Michigan, he had got into properties. You know, he had got into uh, buying properties up. You know, his old thing we, we had... Back then, they said you take, uh, you buy trash and you turn it into cash. So that's what he was doing. He was flipping houses long before we even knew what flipping houses was. Now he had a nephew, right? He had a little nephew, which was uh, one of my good friends named Vince. You know, one of my best friends in this world is uh, Vince's brother Harold. Me and Harold came up together. Me, Harold, and Boom Boom. You know, Boom Boom was another one of my best friends in the world. We all really good friends. We grew up together. Now Harold had an uncle, Mr. Alexandra. Right, they came from Louisiana with us. You know, like I say, he was doing the flipping housing way before we even knew what flipping housing was. He was in the real estate. He was making moves in Michigan on the real estate tip. Right. So Vince, when Vince came back from the army, Vince very smart with money. You know, Vince is Harold's brother. You know, my best friend. You know, we all best friends. You even even Vince, he like a little brother to me, and they little other brother, Damien, they like little brother, little brother to me. You know, I I lay down my coat over a puddle of water for him to walk on. So what happened was when he came back from the army, Vince came back making some moves. You know, Vince did pretty, he did pretty wise with with, with his money when he was in the army. So he had a little son when he came out, and Vince started buying houses. When he he bought this one house, he bought this one house over by Pontiac Northern. And I ain't know, but Vince was pretty good with his hands. See, Vince can look at something, and Vince can do it. Vince cheap, too. Vince can look at something, and he can do it. He can build and remodel stuff like that. Uh, Vince took that house over by Pontiac Northern, and Vince turned that house, and, and uh, he did a fantastic job on that house. Now, I don't know how much he paid for it, but uh, Vince, 
he lived in that house for about two years. He turned around and he made some good money off that house. But at that time, I know Vince was trying to tell me about you know getting in the house buying properties. But at that time, I was drinking. I was drinking, running the street, running little gals, you know, from you know from down from Ohio to 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 to, to Flint to Saginaw to Detroit. Man, you know, I just I I was man, I ain't I ain't know nothing about no investing no money. Only thing I knew about was I get paid, I save, save some of my money, and I drank the rest of my money up, you know, and 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 buy drinks for the fellas or whoever, you know. But Vince, Vince was smart with his money. Vince was making money. He was in that real estate thing before, and I can remember that house. It was a green house over by Pontiac North, and that, that was a real nice house. Vince turned around and flipped, and then Vince went along to flip a couple more houses also. At you know also now. This was before 1991 when I, you know, ran into Mr. Alexandra. Because around about 1990, I had stopped drinking. I, I, you know, I put that bottle down and I stopped chasing them little gals. Now, only bad thing about that was I noticed that when I stopped drinking, my average went down. I ain't get as many women. <laughs> I ain't get as many women when I stopped drinking. That was the only bad thing I say about what happened to me when I stopped drinking. My average went down. <laughs> That's okay. But I stopped drinking and, um, I started going to church because I was trying to get out them streets, you know, because I, you know, I, was, I used to drink, you know, I used to three o'clock in the morning, you know, we all getting drunk and drinking everything. I used to think I can drive good at three o'clock in the morning, you know, with one eye closed. I jump on the highway and then drive an hour to Saginaw or drive a half hour to Detroit or something like that. Drunk as a skunk at three o'clock in the morning. The one I killed somebody killed myself. But one night coming, coming back from Detroit, me and this little gal named Gabriel was in my convertible spot in 2000. We ran off the highway. I <laughs> 75 ran off the highway. I tell you about that story later. I'm getting all off track. But look at that's me. I got a whole lot of stories to tell. But look, um, so uh, right about I say 1990 when I had stopped drinking, you know, I kind of like closed my closed myself off from 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 everybody. You no, know, because in order to change yourself, change something about yourself, you can't keep doing the same thing you used to do. You can't keep hanging around the same people you used to hang around. If you want to make a change in your life, you got to change everything that's not healthy in your life. Not to say that my fellows weren't healthy at the time. It was just that I need I need to clean myself up. Like Bob Marley had that song say, lively up yourself. And get myself. So I had to pull away from everybody. So, you know, I kind of went into like a seclusion, you know, uh, self-quarantine, you know, like this COVID thing here. See, Back then, you know, we didn't have uh, COVID, so we go into self-quarantine. <laughs> so um, when I finally kind of getting stronger, you know, getting stronger where I, where I could come out and not go to the liquor store and get something to drink or, or get in my car trying to chase some little gal, you know, cattail around, you know, uh, I started thinking a little bit more. I started reading a little bit more, researching a little bit more, and I came across Mr. Alexandra. You know, again, you know, like I, said, I knew Mr. Alexander when I was a little boy, but I never had any, you know, uh, communication with him, anything like that. You know, me and his, his little son, you know, you know, we were friends and he had a daughter. We were friends and I knew him, but I was my mind wasn't that. So when I ran across Mr. Alexander one day, actually, I was walking. I was walking and um, by the train truck coming across the train track. And that's not South Boulevard. I can't I, I, I can't uh, Lot Street, Lotus Street. I can't think of that street right now, but it's by the train tracks and it has a church over there. The street was called Harvey Street. I saw somebody else calling the train track and it's a big open field. You can see this green house sitting back off the road. You know, it's the only house. It was like sitting on a dead end by train tracks. And I'll come across the train track. I looked over to my right. And I see somebody working on a house. And it looked like Mr. Alexander. So I wanted to over there. 
I went over, over there and started talking to him. You know, I like me. I like old. I like older folks. You know, I like old because they, they got good knowledge. You know, you can't learn none, none, none from a fool, you know, but foolishness. <laughs> so I sit there and I talk to Mr. Alexandra and he was telling me about the house. And he asked me, he say, uh, he asked me, did I have a job? I say, yes, sir. He say, do you, uh, you know, how's your credit? I say, my credit pretty good. He said, you, you ever bought anything? I say, no. He say, well, your credit ain't good. I'm like, huh? I say, my credit good because, uh, I don't have no credit. I ain't never bought anything. I ain't got no negative on my credit because I ain't never bought anything. He said, well, that means you got bad credit then. I didn't understand that. I was about as confused with a duck standing out in the rain with a raincoat on. I didn't understand what he's talking about. The thing about this is if you don't have any credit, it's just like having bad credit because you because you haven't you haven't established that you that uh that, that you haven't you haven't established that you will pay folks back. You see what I'm saying? So he said, I'll tell you what, he said, see this house here? He said, I'm looking to sell this house. I'm like, okay. He said, but uh, he said, I'm gonna tell you how to do it. I'm like, okay. He said, what I want you to do is, he said, I want you to, he said, I'm gonna sign, he said, I'm gonna quick deed this house over to you for a dollar. I said, okay. He said, then you be gonna get the house appraised, right? I'm gonna sign over to you for a dollar, then you, then you gonna go to the bank and you're gonna take a home equity loan out on the house. Or a loan out, out on the house, right? Because it's my, it's pretty much my, when he quit deed over me for a dollar, it's my house. So when we, we got that done, I went to the bank. I got a loan on that house for, I think, $15,000, right? And I gave, I gave Mr. Alexander 12000 and he let me keep three, you know, to, to put some money in the house to fix the house up. And he said, I just, I just gave you a start on your first house. And you see what he did? You see what he did? You, 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 see, you see how he played the game? And it's all legal. It's all legal. Because people do it every day. But see, us black folks, black folks don't learn about that because we don't learn about money. We don't learn about economics. We don't learn about how to make our money work for us. We don't understand the importance of having a good credit. We don't understand that. That's why when the bill collector used to call my house when I was a little boy, my mama didn't want to answer the phone. How we got a telephone, mama, and when the phone ring, you don't want us answering it at a certain time. Because she didn't want to hear from the bill collector because she didn't pay her bill. This is the kind of stuff that we learn. We learn bad financial advice from watching our parents. Watching our parents run from the phone every time the phone ring. You know, or when the, or when the, when the bill collector sent us, uh, send the mail, letter in the mail, she take, she, she take the letter and just throw it up there on the counter. Mail stacking up, bills stacking up on the counter. If you're not going to pay the bill when it comes, throw the envelope away. They're going to send you another bill next month. <laughs> In my life, you stacking, you stacking bills up. Don't worry about it. If you're not gonna pay it right then, we're just gonna throw it away. They're gonna send you another bill next month. That's the kind of stuff we learn from our parents. You know, we learn from our parents that when the when the phone bill, I mean, yeah, when the, when the um when the light bill is due, and the folks say that you owe us a hundred dollars for this month, what we do? We only pay. We 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 get that man. Well, I'll give you thirty five dollars this month. We let that bill accumulate. But then we, we 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 take the other money that we play that we can pay the full bill with, and we go out there and do foolish things with it. This kind of stuff that I seen when I was a little boy, and it wasn't just me; it was all my friends. It was their parents too. It was a whole community. You didn't have many folks like like uh, Mr. Alexander. Mr. Alexander took care of business. Mr. Alexander took care of business. You, you know, he was a good role model for his dad, for his for his kids. His kids started doing a little real estate also too. 
But a lot, but a lot, a lot of times when the when the parents work hard, do something, the kids, the kids usually kind of rebellious because they don't want to see, they don't, don't want to do what their parents did, you know, to make money. Sometimes they kind of like rebellious and they try, they want to go in their own direction, you know. But but people like Mr. Alexander, he didn't share that information with everybody, right? So he must have seen something in me that shared information with me. Now, mind you, his nephew Vince. Vince had already started learning this game maybe two to uh, two years before. Vince was already in because Vince was observed and Vince wanted to make money. You know, legal money. You know, Vince, so Vince learned these things. Vince observed and Vince got, and even to this day, Vince got his business. Vince doing good today. You see, Vince had that work and not so much that work ethic, but Vince had that business ethic on in my own. Now, see, now when I bought that one house, when Mr. Alexander helped me out buying that one house, um, I ended up buying another house. Did the same thing. This, this time, you know, this is, well, I ain't gonna get off in the day, I ain't gonna tell everything. But I bought another house with no money down. Then I bought another house with no money down. Flipped it. Bought no, with no money down. 1998, just say I had a whole lot of money just from flipping houses. Just two houses I flipped. I had a whole lot of money and didn't put a single dime down on none of them houses. Had a lot of money. Everything legal. Every, everything legal. I said, where things were. You, see, you can do things a legal way like folks been doing as long as you have good mentors to teach you how to do things. We don't have good mentors in the community. We got we, we got fools on TV now having stacks of money up, up, uh, up to their ear talking into their money like they're talking to a stockbroker. We have bad examples these days on how to make our money work for us. And let me tell y'all something. What I'm trying to tell you is not so much about having your money work for you. It's having your credit work for you. It's not so much about money. I keep telling folks these days, people, we are, we're on this thing where we want to get money. Get money. I got to get the bag. I hear these young niggas, these little rappers, I got to get the bag. That's the most stupid thing I heard in my life. What the thing, what you need is you need information. You need good credit. You need to establish good credit with people. You know, something, something that I did here recently, I uh, I was looking at doing something. I took a $15,000. Now, I ain't need it now. I ain't need it. But probably about six months ago, I took a $15,000 loan out. Because after I came out my last divorce, my credit score was a little low. It was something like 650 or something like that. So I took a look at that, right? Now, I don't owe nobody. I ain't got no bills. The only bill I got is my rent. And I pay my rent on time because I ain't got no bills. I ain't got a car note. You see what I'm saying? But I I, but I, I, stay, I, got, a, I, I got an American Express card. I pay every month. They get their money every month. They love me. But when I, when I had that a couple, couple months ago, I think it was last year, I sit back and I look and I say, well, you know, I'm going I'm to be making some changes in 2020. So I want to kind of get my my credit score up. Because like I told you something, when you don't have any credit, it's like you got bad credit. Now, I had my credit dropped because I went through a divorce. And like I tell people at the same time, I want to tell people right now, when you meet somebody, you meet somebody and you fall all googly googly eyes for them, you talk about you want to get married to them and all live a lifetime and all this old crazy talk. Let me tell you something, all that stuff fade away. When you meet a gal, right, I'm talking to you little fellas right now, and this can also apply, apply for you little girls out there. When you meet a fella, you want to know if they got good credit. 
you want to know if they pay their bills. Because long after the sex and the feeling is gone, you want to know, right, if you have a responsible person there. If you got a person that you can build something with. If you got this old gal just because she look good, but she got bad credit and she ain't got no working skills, she ain't got nothing good about herself, you're going to get tired of having sex with her. When you get tired of having sex with her, you're going to be off to the next girl because it ain't nothing that love. And that's saying about that fella. That fella may look good. He may have a long ding dong and all that kind of stuff. He may lay, lay it down in bed. But if he got bad credit and he ain't doing nothing for himself, you're going to be at work and he's going to be laying there on your couch playing Xbox smoking weed. So this kind of stuff you got to realize when you meet people. Now, mind you, I'm learning this a little late in life now. I'm learning this a little late in life. But there's going to be more talk about that later too. But what I'm saying is this. I looked at my credit, right? I was sitting there one day and I was sitting there figuring, I said, you know what? I want to get my credit score up. Okay. I want to get my credit. I want to get my credit score up quick too. Right. So what I did was I went to Wells Fargo. I love Wells Fargo. Y'all say what y'all want about Wells Fargo, but I watch Wells Fargo though. You got to watch them. I watch Wells Fargo. Y'all watch them fools. Boy, got to watch anybody got some money. So what I did was I went to Wells Fargo and I took out a $15,000 loan. No, 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 no. No, the first thing I did, I went to Wells Fargo, and I was sitting there talking, uh, talking to a lady, and we got talking finances, and, and she looked at my credit. I think at that time, my credit score was something like, I think my credit score was 700, and it went up, not from 650, but it went up to like 703 or two or something like that. And uh, she said, uh, you know, do, uh, do you want a Wells Fargo American Express card? Now, I always heard about American Express cards, right? I was like, no, nah, I don't think I want that. You know, I don't think I want that. And then she's then I say, well, if I got one, what would my credit limit do? She told me what my credit limit would be. I was like, that sure is a whole heap of a lot of money. I don't need that much money because I'm used to paying everything by cash. Or my other little, um, uh, I have another credit card. I have a, a secure credit card. I can't get in trouble with that. You can't get in trouble. I'll tell you about the secure credit card later. We talk about credit card. But I say, no, that's too much money. I don't need all that money. Then I got to, then I say, well, hold on. I called my sister-in-law in California, and I put her on three-way on the speakerphone with the Wells Fargo lady there and started asking her. My sister-in-law, she good with money. That woman, that good, good with money. Look, my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law, good with money. So what I did was, if you notice, I reached out and asked for advice. That's what you got to do, Sam. When, when, if you don't know something, you got to reach out and ask for advice, especially when it comes to money. Don't be too proud to listen to what folks say and what folks try to sell you. You got to reach out and get some advice. So I called my sister-in-law. And she gave me some good advice. Well, uh, well, Fargo lady was there. So I told her, well, Fargo lady, I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and take that credit card. And, 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 and it had a high, got a high dollar amount on it, too. I said, I take that credit card. I said, but what I want to do is I want to set up automatic deductions, you know, from my account. So every month when that, when that bill come due, I don't want to have to be looking over my shoulder like my mama is stacking bills up on the table, you know, I, I can't pay that this week, or I'll pay $20 on this this week. Uh, uh, Fading the phone call, I don't want to do that. What I want y'all folks to do is I want y'all to take this money out every month. Y'all, whatever I spend on y'all card, I can say y'all card, ain't my card, it's their card. They just let me use it. Whatever I spend on y'all card, I don't care if it's $400, $5,000. At the end of the month, y'all take that out of my account. Y'all take y'all money back. That way I can't get in trouble because see if you miss that American Express car payment, you'll be paying something like 20 some percent interest, if not more. I don't need that. That compound interest, I don't need that. See, I'm trying to establish something. So I got that card and I established that when, when every month, if I spend some money on that card, 
Them folks get their money. That also is a thing to me that don't spend more than you can afford. See, I can't overspend. But see, if I got that gap in there where I can just use that card, right? I don't know what the next month or next month going to be if I can afford it, but I'm just using that card. And then something happened like this there's a COVID virus or anything happened where you can't work, you can't make money, but still you got that debt you got to pay because you know what? You ran that debt up. See, look, I can only spend what I want to pay back. That shot my credit score up. Then I got to thinking, I said, you know what? I want to get that little credit score up a little higher. So I went in there one day. I say, look, uh, sit down there. I say, I want to borrow $15,000. Look, look at me. She looked at my credit. She looked at my little money I had in the bank. She said, uh, shoot, I don't, I don't even think it was an hour or 30 minutes. People say, you got it. We sign your name right here. Ain't that something? You can walk in the bank and tell the people you want $15,000 and sign your name. Huh? I hear all these stories about people say that we can't go to no bank and get low. You can't go to no bank and get low because your credit bad. Ain't a lot of black folk talk about that. I told them this one gal. She was talking about, well, I tried to go to the bank and get some money from a business, and they turned me down. Yo, your credit bad. You ain't pay folks back. You got too much debt. Your debt to, your debt to income ratio is too high. Now, y'all know what debt to income ratio is, right? Huh? Huh? That, 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 that means when your income is at one level and your debt is higher than your income, it's supposed to be the other way around. But she want to make it sound how the bank is evil. How them folks at the bank turned her down because she black. They turned you down because you black. Turned you back because your credit bad. You can't pay nobody back. That's what y'all got to realize. Y'all rich. Y'all don't all be, be people racist because they won't give you no money. They won't give you no money because your credit bad. You can't look. They look at your credit report. The light bill. You still owe money on the light bill. You still owe money on, on the phone bill. You still owe money on all this other stuff that you can borrow. But yet you're outside driving a Lexus. Come on, people don't give you no money. You, 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 you are a risk liability. You risk liability is what you is. I'm telling you, I went in the people sign money. People gave me fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> they gave me fifteen thousand dollars. I said, look, what y'all do is, okay, y'all just transfer that fifteen thousand dollars in my account. <laughs> the people say, yes, sir, Mister Martin. <laughs> I say, all right then. That's all. Sounds all right to me. Six months later, I gave them people their $15,000 back. <laughs> I paid on it a couple months. I, yeah, I paid on it, paid on it a couple months, and I gave them 14000 something like $14,200 back. After a few months, it wasn't six months, it was a few months. Yeah, because I paid them back. They gave me $15,000 put into my account, and a few months, a few months later, I just say, man, I ain't paying no $300. Three hundred and some dollars a month for five years on fifteen thousand dollars, something like seventy percent interest. I didn't care what the interest rate was because I knew I had a plan. I paid on it for long enough and gave people their money back. My credit score went up between that American Express card and that little loan, uh, that little loan uh, jab I pulled. My credit score went up. You got to use a system. Right about that same time when, 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 when Mr. Alexander sold his house, there was a book. There was a book that I don't know how I got hooked to this book. It's called Money, the Greatest Hopes by a guy by the name of Merrill Jenkins. Man, this book taught me how to work money. It taught me how to work not just money, but the uh, resources, material things. 
Because money isn't wealth. Money isn't wealth. You know what wealth is? Wealth is your sweat, your exertion, your work, your labor. That's wealth. When these companies like General, General Motors, they got, you know what General Motors' wealth is? Their wealth is the people, the people that work for them. Because the material things don't mean nothing. You got people to make it and build it. But you devalue your own wealth by thinking you only worth $10 an hour, $6 an hour, or to be on somebody else's plantation. Now, ain't nothing wrong with somebody because I work for somebody. I love my job. But you got to understand what your worth is. Your worth is defined by what somebody is willing to pay you, not what you think you're worth. If you think you're worth more than what somebody is willing to pay you, then you, you don't take that job, like my daddy say. If you ain't willing to work for what a man is offering you, then you got to go out and find something better or do your own thing. That's what my daddy taught me. My daddy ain't say, if a man, if a man offer you a certain amount of dollar money uh, and you don't want to work for it, you, 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 you taking the court or you marching the street. He ain't say that. He say, this is America, boy. He say, if you don't like what that man is offering you, then don't work for him. You got to establish something. You got to establish good principles and move within them principles. You can't look at all of what these people say. You listen to people every day. People have you so confused. Have you about as confused as a black fly with his soul all turned off. Or a bat flying with his sonar malfunctioning. <laughs> good financial. You have to learn good financial, but you have to have the good examples. Like, like me, I have good examples. My daddy was a saver. My daddy ain't buy nothing. When my daddy died, he had a $10 bill at Sears Robot. $10. He owed Sears Robot $10 when he died. My daddy saved money. I'm like, my daddy saved my money. My daddy didn't invest his money. He just saved his money. My daddy was one of them pillowcase investors. You know what I mean? I had that money. My dad, my dad had a floorboard that was loose underneath his bed. The head of his bed. He had opened up a floorboard. And that's where he had a lot of his money stashed at beside what he had in the bank. And just like my daddy, at one point, I wasn't investing my money. But now, I invest my money now. I sure do. I can't tell y'all what I invest my money in, but I invest my money. At one time, I didn't believe in 401k. I wish I'd have stopped believing in 401k when I should have been believing in 401k. I, I got 401k now, right? And I put it, I, 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 put, I put, I try to put at least, I try to put at least 20, 25% of my earnings in 401k because I ain't got no bills. I ain't got nothing. See, I ain't go out there and make all them babies. You see what I'm saying? My daddy, my daddy also told me, he said, boy, your dangling will make a slave out you. Now, you know what that means? Your dangling will make a slave out you? That means if you go out here and make four, five, 20 kids, you got to pay for them. And you're going to be working paying for them. You ain't going to never have nothing. Because you're going to be paying child support for all them kids. If I tell people, kids ain't, kids ain't a benefit, ain't, ain't an asset. Kids are a liability. Kids only become an asset to their parents when their parents get older and the kid takes care of the parent. That's when a kid becomes an asset. Other than that, kid's a liability. And I said, I tell people all the people, well, my kid, let me tell you something. I can't wait till my kid get 18. They out the house. Let me tell you, kids get more expensive after 18. Your child get more expensive. You're not taking care of them every day like when they was younger, but now you're spending bulk on them. 
where you buying them cars, taking them to college, uh, been getting lawyers for them, building them out of trouble, all kind of old crazy stuff. That becomes a liability. They're taking resources from you. But see, over in Japan, now they got off in the hub, something totally different from banking, but all it's got to do with money is what I'm telling y'all. All it's got to do with money. Y'all look at the banks, call the banks evil. If, if it wasn't for the banks, it wouldn't be no economy. If it wasn't for the reserve, it wouldn't be no economy. It wouldn't be no sta stable economy. American economy is a little bit more stable than any other country, pretty much. Probably except for maybe Germany. Germany, you know, Germany, them Germans are pretty slick, but, you know, probably Germany. But American economy is a pretty good economy. It ain't the best. It ain't perfect. Yes, it's inflationary because they won't raise a dang on interest rate like they're supposed to. Because you people out there so addicted to cheap money. Y'all don't want to pay the interest on nothing. Y'all go out here and y'all buy all these bills and buy all this stuff, borrow money, and you don't want to pay interest on it. Now, I'm not talking about the poor average man. With you too. I'm talking about these big, like these high fluent developers and these big rich, rich people. See, these rich people get all that cheap money, don't pay no interest on it. You see? But then that also spreads that to lower folks too. You want stuff, but you don't want to pay no interest on it. That's why we got interest rate, 0% interest to buy a car. To get you to buy a car, Ford got to say 0% interest. Do you know that devalues a dollar? That, 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 that inflates the economy? When you get stuff at 0% interest, because in other words, the feds is printing money, right? And they're getting 0% interest on it. That's why you see stuff like taxes go up in certain areas. Tax projections go up because they have to find money to recoup that money, get that money out of the system. Y'all go back and listen to my, my talk on Federal Reserve, how this money thing work. When the, when, when the bankers create money, you got you to gotta, you gotta take those numbers out of circulation. The best way to take it out of circulation is taxation. The taxes take that, that take, take those numbers out of circulation so more numbers can be created. But when there's no numbers being taken out of circulation through interest rates, then the money starts getting devalued because you got a whole lot of workers' money out there. That's why I say a dollar, 100% is only worth maybe, maybe 50 cents if that, or 45 cents. I mean, the bankers are trying to do the right thing. Hey, is their system is they get like I told y'all before? What other system is that? You want to go back to reading the bartering? You give me a pig, I give you a chicken. You give me a turnip, I give you, I give you a poker bean. That system don't work. That's not the global economy. You can't you you you, you can't send no ship across the ocean off no baby back rib. Guess what? A baby back rib, they gonna ship a whole ship across over for a baby back rib. And you're not gonna ship no you're not gonna ship no cocoa or no coffee from over from uh, Latin America down there up here. You know, get, get, get somebody a whole fill a sack of beans and they're gonna ship all your stuff back over here to get somebody for a chicken to send a chicken back over there. Come on, people. Learn about this economy. Learn about how your money works. Learn about the banking system. It's not as hard as you think. Most of all, I try to tell folks is learn about good credit. Learn about paying people what you owe people. When your bills come in, pay them for about when your bill come in. Don't get a light company, $25, and you owe them $75. Don't get a water bill, man, uh, $10 when you when you, when you when you owe them $75 because you went out there and filled up the swimming pool. Come on. Pay what you owe. If you don't want to owe it, don't get it. I guarantee you in the long run, you can get more with good credit than you can 
with cash. See, because cash, like I say, is affectionate, it goes quick. But that good credit, you can make moves with good credit and then pay it back. You with, with good with, with, with good credit, you can go out, you go out there and get something that costs, you can get it on credit for I'm just gonna use the example, you can get it on credit for say five hundred dollars. Right? If you know the value and you watch the market of things, you get it for five hundred dollars off your good credit. You ain't have you ain't pay nothing down. Them people trust you. They say we're gonna give you five hundred dollars. You just pay an X amount of money back at this interest. See, I don't I don't really care about no interest. You know, I, I take a loan. If if I got a plan, if I got a plan, I take a loan even at 12% interest. I take that loan because I know in this amount of time I'm going to do this and I'm going to make more than that and I can pay that 12% interest back. Or if I can get it 90, 90 days or 30 days without interest, right, I can do what I got to do and make money and pay that loan back plus that interest and still make money. Now, I didn't use them people money to make money. My brother taught me that. My brother always say, don't use your money, use their money. But you won't use their money if you got good credit. The banks are there. The system is there in place. The system is there for the rich folks, yeah. But see, you can use that system too. See, people say, well, the rich folks don't all know all the loopholes. Well, if you sit down and study something, you can learn the loopholes too. You sit down and open a book, or you can go online and get your audio book these days and listen to You can do it too. They're not doing a lawyer, somebody who has to study the law. He has to study the tax the tax loopholes. The tax loopholes ain't no ain't it well, such like loophole. The tax system is not secret. Anybody can learn a tax secret. The loophole is what you find in the writing. That's what the loophole is. Because they, 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 right, rich people, they got all these loopholes. There is no written loophole. There's there's people that sit down and read this stuff, right? And they say, well, oh, well, they say this. I think we can do this. Because this is kind of great. And this is not fully defined. So if it's not, if it's a gray area, it is not fully defined, you can find out a way to manipulate the system. And that's what people like Trump do. What's wrong with that? That what you can you, you can do that too. If you have patience. Come on, we weren't out here doing all the boogaloo and all this shaking and trying to impress people and all this old crazy stuff. You can do it too if you want to do it. There ain't no tax loop, ain't no written tax loopholes. The loophole that people, there's things that people find in the writing that they can manipulate, but you can go online, you can, you can read it too. That's why when you buy a house, they get whole stacks of paper. They know you ain't gonna read all that. You can go through this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And then six months later, when the people come take your house, you wonder why they're taking your house. They're taking your house because you sign that document and they say, you're gonna pay us this amount of time, then we're gonna come take out, we gonna come back and take our house. You ain't read the document, don't go get a lawyer to read it. Ain't nothing wrong with the system. The system is there for you. We just have to learn the system. And that's what we haven't been doing. We haven't been learning the system. Keep it simple. You learn the system. And if you can't learn the system, right? You surround yourself with people who can learn the system, who know the system. You think Trump know all these laws and rules? No. He surround himself with folks that do. Like Henry Ford did back in the day when they tried to take Henry Ford to court. For patent infringement, right? And the guy had Henry Ford on the stand, and he was gonna prove to the court how dumb Henry, how dumb and illiterate Henry Ford was. Henry Ford said, "You know, I may not be a learning man in the book sense." He said, "But on my desk, there's a little box with a number of buttons on it, and I can press any one of them buttons, and somebody will come running into my office, 
and I ask them a question and they give me the answer to my question. You don't have to be the smartest man in the man in the world to have all the information in your head. You just know how to get the you just know how to know how to uh uh to, to fish for the resources, how to go get the resources. I surround yourself with people who know things. See, that was wrong with a lot of times. We surround ourselves with dumb people. We surround ourselves with stupid people who want to do something totally different than where we're going. And then we find out why we're still in the car, especially in the back seat. Why are we still in the back seat after all this time? Well, you're in the back seat after all this time because you've been you you've you been you you you've been riding with the wrong folks. You had the wrong driver. You had the wrong passenger. You've been in the back seat riding with the wrong folks. That why you ain't got a head. Don't blame the banks. Don't blame the man. Don't blame the system. Learn the system. Learn how to maneuver around a system. Yeah, a lot of folks who maneuver maneuver around a system. You can move around the system too. But you just have to learn how to get your priorities right. I always tell people, first thing you do, you establish good credit. That, um, that's the one thing a person can look at to deny you anything. The privileges can't come out and say, I'm denying you, I'm denying you credit because of such and such, 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 such on the physical. They look at that paperwork and they say, Well, oh, I don't have to say that. I can get sued if I say that. But I can say I deny them because of this, 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 it. See, you got to take excuses away from folks. See, once you take excuses away from, away from folks, the only thing there is the real. Now, if somebody denies you because of the real, then you got a legal recourse and a good lawsuit to make money without spending money. Just get a lawyer his third percent. <laughs> But look at that. I feel up y'all head now, man. I'm up here. I'm working my home, and I done ran this little talk down here, man. And shoot, I did. I, I didn't even get a chance to smoke on this cigar either, man. I gotta tell you, I did. So I can't tell y'all, man, with this punch, ran puro Nicaragua tastes like, man. Still here in my hand, but I still enjoy talking to y'all, though. You know, I may have got y'all. Y'all know me, oh, my little commentary. I get on my little rants. I may not even stick, you know, stick to the thing that I'm talking about. But the most important thing is. That you know, y'all learn, y'all y'all listen to the little talk. You know, listen, listen to the little talk. Learn a little, get, you know, get some of the education stuff that I'm trying to share with y'all. And my little talk is just old hound dog with a whole lot of stories to tell. There's a whole lot of my experience growing up. Just something that I want to share. It may not be precise or organized, but it's all with good intentions. All right, but look here, y'all get a chance. Y'all try this punch, Grand Puro Nicaragua. Let me tell you, I can't tell y'all it's a good stick or not. I just told y'all what them folks say. But maybe the letter did I tell y'all what on my experience. And I know I'm going to be smoking again. So when it comes around again, I'm definitely going to give y'all my opinion on it. And like I tell y'all always, support your local cigar spot. Support your local cigar spot. If you want to build build up your humidor, that's fine. You can go on CI or get on holds and get you some or bid up or some of them uh, websites where you can buy in both for a lesser price to build your humidor. But let me tell you something. You can't talk to good folks if you're sitting at home by yourself. You can't talk to you. You, you can't. You, you can't. You can't. You, you, you know. You can't get that good knowledge in that conversation that you can't like at these cigar spots. You know, it's just sitting around good folks listening. You know, like most folks say, sitting around good folks talking. I prefer to listen if I had a choice. I prefer to listen. <laughs> All right, look, I'm gonna go and get out of here. Took a little double of y'all time, but look here. Like I tell y'all always in closing, y'all take care of everybody. But more importantly, y'all take care of yourself first. All right now.